through the book of Acts. But I wanted to take a little breather before we finish it up and land in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 103. How many of the best hymns and praise songs begin with these words, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It is not praise the Lord with my lips or lift up my voice. It's my heart with, my, with the depths and deepness of my, of my heart. Praise the Lord. Sincerely, genuinely, out of, a, out of sheer devotion for who God is. You know, in a relationship, the more you understand someone, the deeper that relationship goes, the more you learn to love them. And that's the expression here from David, talking about his relationship with God. He knows God. He knows God's mercy, His kindness, His graciousness. And we'll get into the benefits in a little bit. But this love that pours out of him, towards God because he, de- he knows the depths of God's love as much as humanly possible. And yet God's love is beyond even that. And so we see this expression of praise and thanksgiving, recognizing that God is holy. There is no one in existence like Him. He is perfect. He is holy. He is God. And He is gracious. He is kind. That's why David says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not God's benefits. Do not forget His kindness towards you. God's benefits then He lists for us in the rest of the psalm. Let's take a look at Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made it known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. 
Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you His servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works, everyone in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as I would be happy to just end the message right there. I know that you have prepared counsel for your congregation through me. And I pray, Lord, that you would present it to them and bless them with it. Through your Spirit's power, speaking through your servant, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look mainly at verse 2 in Psalm 103. I want to look at two words within that verse. The first word I want to begin with is the word forget. Forget. When the Bible tells us not to do something, why does it do that? I think you know the answer to that. When the Bible says the law, through the law, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, even in your heart. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. The Bible tells you not to do something. Why does it do that? Because we are inclined to do that. Right? We are inclined to do it. So God tells us not to do it. And what we see here is God telling us not to forget through His servant David. We are inclined to forget especially because of our sin of pride. The Hebrew word used here for forget is shacha. I know it's a mouthful, <laughs> but that's what it is, shacha. And it presents the matter of forgetting, but in two ways. One way is uh, unintentional or even accidental. I have this thing with names. There, it happens very seldom, but every once in a while, I can even be praying for you, and if I have your name in my head, by the time I actually get to bringing you before the Lord, it's like some sneaky little person has entered into the filing cabinet of my mind, grabbed that file, snatched it out, threw it in the trash. I don't know what they did with it, but when I go to retrieve that file with your name in it, it's gone. And I, I feel very embarrassed. <laughs> As a result, but that's unintentional. It's accidental. I'm not trying to forget. It's just I have literally forgotten somehow. So that's one side of this Hebrew term is the unintentional or, or accidental forgetting of something. The other side is intentional. It means that you want to or are trying to forget something. You don't want to remember it anymore. You want to forget. This is still the same word, but it goes two different ways. One is unintentional. The other is intentional. So it's a, normally when it's intentional, it's connected to, to, to two extremes or to the extremes of pleasure and pain. Pain which usually is acted out upon in grief or anger. So some of you remember a movie titled Finding Nemo. Anybody remember that movie? Okay, it's been a while. But it's about a little clownfish. His name is Marlin. He's married to 
his wife clownfish and and they had a whole bunch of little babies that that were hidden away in the coral reef and then you see this ominous picture where this massive barracuda which is a predator fish is looming over it and marlin calls out to his wife no and she goes to defend her little ones and this barracuda ends up eating her and every little egg with a fish in it and it seems like that's the end of the movie but there's one little fish left a little guy named nemo and so it's just marlin the dad and nemo the son who are left well they have a good relationship with each other and and Marlon's catchphrase is, I'm never going to let anything bad happen to you after he had gone through this ordeal. So what happens? Well, there, there's a, a dentist who is diving off the reef, and uh, little Nemo goes a little too far away from the reef, and he gets captured in a, plastic, in a net and put in a plastic bag, and then the uh, dentist brings him over to his office in Australia, and he wants to give this little fish to, he dumps him in the, the larger tank with the other fish he, he had caught as well. And he wants to give this little clownfish to a very aggressive little niece named Darla. Some people might think she's a little psychotic. But she's extremely aggressive towards her pets, right? And the fish in the tank are very fearful of her in a trepidatious way. And they know that if, if she actually gets Nemo, it's probably a death sentence for him. So they're trying to liberate this little fish. They're trying to get him back to the ocean, back to his dad. And his dad, Marlin, meets another little fish named Dory. I'm, not, I'm trying to make this shorter. It's a long, it's two and a half hours long. So anyway, he, he meets this other fish, Dory, and together they go on this great adventure where Marlin is trying to get his son back. It comes to the point where uh, Marlin and Dory meet this uh, pelican who is enamored by the story and wants to help them as well. And he knows where his son Nemo is, up in the dentist's office. And so he takes them there. But Nemo is already in a little bag, little plastic bag, ready to be given to this dentist's niece, Darla, because she had arrived ahead of them. And so the fish in the tank are yelling at Nemo to play dead, because then the dentist will flush you down the, down, down the drain, and all drains lead to the ocean. You'll be free. So what happens? Little Nemo is belly up, playing dead, just at the moment when his dad comes to rescue him. His dad sees him as dead, and they fly away, as his dad is heartbroken, thinking that he's too late. And as the pain of that realization hits him, that now he has lost everything, he's lost all his other little babies, he has lost his wife, and he's lost the only son that was left, he has nothing left. And Dory, who is with him, is trying to remember things, and she's thankful that she's remembering things, remembering the journey, remembering the fellowship, all the benefits of this relationship. And she wants to keep that memory alive. And what does Marlon say? He says, I don't want to remember. The pain is too great. I want it to go away. I don't want to remember anymore. So that is one side of the issue, pain. I was thinking about Noah. Why did he plant a vineyard and make wine from it? And then why did he get drunk off of the wine? He knew that drunkenness was not right in the eyes of God. Why would a man who loves God and was willing to build this massive ship 
Why would he go down this road? Is it not to forget? To forget the voices of those at the base of the ark who were screaming at him to help, to open the door so that they might be saved, only to hear the waters rush over them, the waters of God's judgment, and hush those voices knowing that they are now gone. It's not just the ones around the ark. All over the world, all those voices have been hushed. Was he drinking, trying to get drunk to forget those things? Was he trying to forget how tumultuous and miserable it would have been to be on the ark in the midst of all this tumult at sea? This massive ship being rolled around like a cork upon the waters, trying to tend to the animals to keep them safe, trying to deal with all the things that would, would transpire from a tumultuous trip with all those people on board, the misery and difficulty of it all. Was he trying to forget that? Was he trying to put aside the idea that this God who is infinitely powerful just transformed the whole face of the earth? changed it and he was caught in the midst of this dynamic process and he feels like a simple little toy in the midst of all of this in the presence of a mighty God and he realizes how powerful God truly is and it scares him because he witnessed it firsthand and he wants it to go away he wants life to be easier, maybe more simplified. When we think about who God truly is, it is terrifying. When Jonathan Edwards wrote the sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he wanted us to understand our weakness, our, our frailty in the presence of a holy and almighty God. That we are nothing compared to Him. And for us, that is too much to take and we want to put it aside. We want to bring God down to our level. We want to make Him more like us. Somebody we can more relate to. Someone who's not so scary. I wonder sometimes, instead of getting drunk, should He not have come to the Lord and asked God to renew make new his mind and soul as God is akin to doing that in his great mercy. Even in the midst of grief and sorrow, God is the one who brings us comfort because he loves us. St. Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We're not going to find comfort from this world. We find comfort from God alone. Well, there's another side of intentionally forgetting something which has to do not with pain, but pleasure. Pleasure. Was this not the allurement in the Garden of Eden? God tells the man Adam that eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will bring forth death. <clears throat> and Satan tells, speaking through the serpent, tells the woman Eve that eating this forbidden fruit will open your eyes to a life that transcends the one you currently know. For you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
<clears throat> from the counsel of God, Eve, Eve saw the fruit is very dangerous so that you should not even touch it. But now through the serpent's counsel, she sees the fruit is pleasing and desirable for gaining wisdom. Not any wisdom per se, but this new wisdom where you can be like God, you can be your own God, determining for yourself right from wrong. Is that not how Cain viewed his new perspective? When he killed his brother Abel, he rejected the counsel of God and murdered his brother Abel. Cain's brother Abel did nothing to Cain deserving of death, yet it pleased Cain. Yes, you heard me. It pleased Cain to kill his brother, to be God over him, trying to put God's righteousness, what God required of Cain, trying to put that to death in his brother, Abel. Is this not what even the Jews sought to do with Jesus, God's own son? They're thinking, you know, the prophets were God's servant, but here's the heir. We get rid of him, and it's all ours. We can rule over it and do with it as we please. We will be our own gods and we will not have to pay anything, any tribute, any obedience to this God, to the living God. We will determine what is right from wrong. So this pleased them to put Jesus to death. Yes, it's twisted. Yes, it's perverted. When you are caught up in something that pleases you but does not please the Lord, but whatever that is. I remember a pastor once saying that we sin because we love our sin. We love what we're doing. That desire is in our flesh, and so we actually want to carry out what we're doing. We love our sin. We don't hate it. We don't despise it. When we hate it, that comes from the counsel of the Holy Spirit. What's natural within us is to love our sin. A child disobeys their parents because they want or desire to disobey their parents. A person who openly curses takes pleasure in it. A person who is promiscuous takes pleasure in their actions. A person who strives to take from others to enrich themselves takes pleasure in doing so or they wouldn't do it in the first place. Hence, people intentionally forget primarily because of pleasure or pain. Underneath this forgetfulness is the effort to suppress the truth about God so that you can live your life the way you want as your own God. But in doing so, what are you doing? You're forgetting about the true living God, the Almighty God. And when you forget about Him and reject Him, you do not receive His blessings and benefits. Hence, David says, forget not God's benefits. That's the other Hebrew word to look at. The word for benefits is gemal. Gemal in Hebrew. This is a verb used in several Semitic languages and its main meaning is to treat kindly. Be kind, helpful to someone, to spare or even save someone. I wonder what parable would you see something like that in? Maybe the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
who was simply considered to be neighborly by Jesus Christ as he brought relief to the Jew who was beaten and left for dead. As the Samaritan tended to the Jews' wounds, cleaning them with wine, alcohol, the alcohol from the wine, and, and covering them with oil to keep out the infection and allow him to mend, and then bandaging him and clothing, putting clothing on him to cover him up. When we see him doing that, that the Jew, that he was restoring the Jew's body and even offered to pay for the Jew's future now that he had been robbed of everything. What is significant about this parable is that the Jews saw Samaritans as beneath them. They were not worthy of any kindness that a Jew would show to them. But Jesus shows and reveals that it's not your race that reveals that you belong to God, but the fruit of your actions that display the blessings of God flowing into you and out of you in the form of God's kindness towards others. Simply put, we love because God first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. So what are these blessings, this kindness that flows from God, this saving grace that comes from God to His people through the work of the Holy Spirit? You look at verse 3. God's kindness is in forgiving all your sins and healing all your diseases. This is restoration. Restoration. Whatever harmful way that is in you as a result of sin and the curse, it will be removed by God's grace, His kindness. This deals with our condition of being born into sin. The only way to escape sin's power is through forgiveness and healing. This is the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan who represents Jesus reaches out to those who are destitute and dying and restores them by making payment for them and forgiving them. This ties to verse 4. God redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. On one side, Jesus heals. On the other side, He forgives. In both cases, He's restoring us to God. That's the whole point of redemption, is to buy back something that has been sold. So that's the image. We've been sold into slavery by our own will, by our own desire. And how are we released from that bondage? How are we released from that, that slavery? Someone has to purchase our pardon. And Jesus does that by doing what is right in the eyes of God. You know, God doesn't care about money. He cares about how you use money. God doesn't care about your resources. He cares about how you use your resources. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is the same thing as saying that God created all of them, and they literally all belong to Him. But you have some. How do you use them? Do you use them for your glory or for His? God does not care about what you have. He cares about how you use what you have, what has been given to you. That's what's important. The currency 
that flows in heaven is righteousness, doing what is good in the eyes of God, showing forth God's kindness, God's mercy, God's love. That is what Jesus did when he first lived a righteous and holy life in this world. Then he offered that holy and righteous life up to God, his Father, as a payment for our sin through his death on the cross. The fact that Jesus was resurrected from death to life shows that that payment was received. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are made right then through his blood shed for us. This is, this is Jesus, this is God crowning you with his love. Crowning means it's, it, it's giving you authority. It's putting you in a position of authority. You remember Jesus told the Jews, when the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And, and, and no slave belongs to the family, but the Son does belong to the family. And all that the Son gathers in. What Jesus is saying is that through my love, I'm putting you in a place of authority, in a position of standing in the presence of God my Father in His kingdom so that you belong there. You're not on the outside looking in. You are in the kingdom of heaven as God's child because of my love, His love for you. That's why Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection showed that God the Father accepted this from Jesus Christ. Jesus did what was needed in the eyes of God and heaven to set you free from sin. <coughs> that is the payment and that's the payment that was received is the righteousness of Christ. No gold, no silver. That means nothing to God. God made all that in the first place. But doing what is right is what is important. Verse 5 of Psalm 103. <coughs> Excuse me. Says God satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. All good things come from God above. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing. Good is 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 who God is. And so when you talk about goodness, you're talking about God's provision, God's law, God's word. That is what is good. And it says in verse 5, God satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So that Paul can say, outwardly I am wasting away. You think of all the stuff that Paul went through. All the trials. All the problems. I mean, he's got a list in a couple of his, his letters that you can look at later that just shows all the trauma that Paul had to deal with, whether it's shipwrecks, being in fear of wild animals and robbers and so forth, being stoned to death, being persecuted in one way or another. And yet he can come to this point where he says, outwardly I am wasting away. All these trials have taken their toll on me. But inwardly I am being renewed 
day by day. Inwardly, God is lifting me up like I'm on eagle's wings. And my spirit is strong, even though my flesh is weak and depleted. Another of God's benefits, kindnesses, is verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for for all the oppressed. One of the favorite things for wicked people to do is to oppress others, especially the poor thinking that this world is all there is and and the question is who will hold them accountable? Well, the answer is God will. God will hold them accountable. And Jesus makes this known with another story about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, You can look that up. That's in Luke 16 on your own, but that lays out the groundwork that says God takes everything into account. You're not going to escape His judgment when you die in this world. Verse 7 says that God made His ways known to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. There is a whole series of sermons (laughs) on this one phrase that I can't get into right now, but we can look at it later. The psalmist David is telling us that God revealed Himself to Israel, which is revealing His character. Verses 8 through 13 is the psalmist David revealing God's character. Listen to who God is. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Think about this. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west. We're not looking at around the globe. We're looking at just two arrows pointing in in infinity in different directions. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, this is the Almighty God here we're talking about. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is who God is. Now he remembers who we are in verses 14 through 16. Our character and our condition. It says he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. At a funeral service, you hear these words at the graveside. From death you came, and to death you will go again. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Your body comes from this earth. You will live in this body for a season, and the material this earth has given you will return to the earth as your soul goes before the Lord God Almighty. And God remembers. He does not forget the frailty of our nature. Verses 17 through 19. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant by faith and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. The earth may call for your body at your death. 
But God's love is everlasting. Reaching beyond the power of death to restore you to a life that transcends the life you know here in this world. This is the power of God who raised Jesus from death to life. This is the power of the resurrection for you and me who put our faith in Jesus to save us as we confess Him as our Lord and Savior. This is the power of God's loving kindness to forgive and restore us unto Him that we may dwell with Him in His heavenly kingdom forever. Hence, verses 20 following, Praise the Lord, you His angels. You mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word, Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts, everybody who resides before God in His heavenly kingdom. You, His servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works, everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Let's respond by praising our Heavenly Father for who He is and what He's done for us.